Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths. I'm Dr. Kate Steele and I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan and today is episode four. As always, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So we're back here again with Dr. Mark Lai for a continuing chat after our first podcast episode of Interview with an Examiner. Mark, thanks for being with us again. It's a pleasure. Okay, so Mark, what are some of the common qualities between candidates who are successful in their final exam? Oh, look, that's, uh, that's pretty easy. Good prep, good level of knowledge, and then these people can usually clearly apply them to unusual situations. You know, like day-to-day anaesthetic practice, you must be able to um, just decide when you should cancel. Decide when you're going to proceed and be able to make a choice on your technique, how you're going to modify your choices to suit the patient's weight, their comorbidities, etc. I mean, candidates that can do that on, on the fly look really relaxed at doing so, right? Okay. So judgment and the ability to decide are really fundamental skills here. I think there are some candidates that think that the questions can be answered directly out of Miller. <laughs> Yao and Artuzio, or worse, somebody said the Oxford Handbook. Oh my God, right? Oh, yes. I, I think you really need to be able to modify your answers on your feet. And, and you know, like we go back to saying your clinical acumen, your, your ex- life experience, because all of us know that you've got to change something sometime with, mm-hmm. as the patient changes. And I think you've got to apply that to the exam as well. Just because you've read the textbook answer in Miller doesn't mean that that's the answer for everything. Mm, that's a really good point. Now, contrary to that, what are some of the common qualities between candidates who are unsuccessful in the final exam? Well, in giving feedback to candidates who've been unsuccessful for many years now, I think people who study by themselves frequently fail. Okay. They fail because they, they don't test their knowledge on other candidates. They also miss out on hearing about new MCQ black banks, for example, and they're also unaware of the breadth of knowledge compared with other candidates. So you just don't know what you don't know. Mm. Okay. There are some candidates that believe that there's such a thing as a correct answer, right? Mm. So they, they try to rote learn every situation, the correct answer mm. for every situation. Uh, and, and, you know, in particular, I'm looking at you, IMGS uh, candidates. Sometimes, sometimes you believe that um, uh, there is such a thing as a textbook answer that we're looking for. We're not. We're looking for process. We're looking for, for uh, formulation. We're looking for how you decide on something. And what we're trying to assess is how good are you as a consultant uh, in making up these decisions and, and assessing that quality, you see. Uh, so there are definitely many approaches to, to Viva answers. And, you, can, you know, Viva situation can be solved by, by two or three different pathways and all of which are correct, mm. you know, not just one answer. Um, and then there's also the candidate that believes that somehow or other there is some way of escaping the impending crisis uh, in a Viva. yes. yes. You know? I cancel them. I cancel yeah, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to keep. Going. I'm not going to move on. Yeah, you know that that sort of thing. So I can I can tell you that no matter how many cross matches, how many specialists you've called to help, and no matter how many invasive monitors you've inserted into this young patient having a DNC, <laughs> that, that diabetic ketoacidosis, that perforation, that major bleed is still going to happen. Oh. Gosh, actually, that's um, that was some really good advice that I was given when I'm, you know, when you're in the middle of one of the anesthesia vivers. If you know they're leading you down the path of something horrendous, like an awake fiber optic or something awful, you know, and you keep 
butting heads with the examiner because you say you wouldn't do it and they say, no, you would. Just do the darn thing they yeah, want yeah. you to do. Don't That's, fight it because you're just wasting time. It's mm. exactly right. Yep. Yeah. You can't avoid it. That's really interesting. It's happening whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So we all know, like, in the primary exam that there's, you know, the big five for pharmacology, oh, yeah. your, your, you know, your cardiovascular and respiratory physiology, and they're the kind of money areas. So what do you think are the money areas in the fellowship exam and, and any areas that think you're outstandingly low yield that people might spend too much time on? Yeah. Okay. Look, look classically, everyone knows that there's definitely going to be obstetrics, peds, and trauma. Okay, in the virus, they're just bread and butter topics, mm. and we all know that. Common topics have a high rate of passing, all right? So, so the examiners then have a really high expectation that you know your PEDS fluid formulas, your resuscitation mm. protocols, your, your primary survey, to a really fluent level. So, you know, just barely scraping through a primary survey and a mm. trauma is likely to get you almost an instant fail. Mm. Um, so, so you do need to know those things pretty well. Also... Um, I find that practicing crisis um, answers, so developing knowledge that can help you solve tricky situations. And so in Aviva, we create questions that deliberately make it a tricky situation, right? Mm-hmm. So, so testing how well you can, you can start thinking out loud, how, how well you can ap- approach those principles. So, for example, airways bleeding, crisis management, you can really impress an examiner if you've got, if you can talk about, say, pros and cons of airway devices, what, what you're going to pick next, mm. uh, fluid, fluency in, say, describing your phoner technique, um, understanding things like Rotem, especially mm. if they hand you a result and being able to talk that mm. through mm. and then make a decision on what bloods you're going to give. Having differentials, you know, like, mm. you know, even differentials of hypoxia, differentials of, of malignant hypothermia, for example, and then being able to pull out a dose of dantrolene. Um, mm. if, if, you can, if you can have all that at your fingertips, then, then um, it's really hard to pick what's going to be a gimme. Mm. But you probably need all that information across the breadth of the exam anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, you also have to remember that the exam ideally tries to cover the whole syllabus, mm, right? So that horrifyingly includes electrical safety, <laughs> anatomy, <laughs> pharmacology, intensive care, pain. Mm-hmm. You know, some people really like some of those subtopics, but as, as um, you know, let me put it this way. The more fact-based the information is, the, the drier it is, the more likely it is to be included in MCQs. Mm. Okay, cool. Okay, so, so a fact-based answer is not well-tested in vivas. Mm. If there's also a topic that every anaesthetist can't stand, I'm not going to say which ones, okay? <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, it's more likely to be asked in a limited scope. So, for example, ICU, they, mm. they might focus on, on big core topics like DKA or lung ventilation strategies, you mm. know. Um, anatomy, they might relate it to a regional block uh, or mm. ultrasound block mm. or airway, you know. Pharmacology, as we talked about earlier in the piece, uh, is usually in a clinical context and, uh, and, and one should also have a very firm grasp of approaches to chronic pain. And not just use words like multimodal, biopsychosocial, multidisciplinary approach repeatedly. <laughs> the examiners can see right through that one. If you've got no other facts except those three big words, you should go and study your chronic pain. Mm. So, one of the million dollar questions what constitutes a pass mark for each section? Are you allowed to tell us that? It's really actually very simple. 
Oh, really? It Great. is. Every section needs 50% pass mark. Really? So it's just 50% blanket across indeed, the board? Indeed. So let's not get confused with the minimum 40% for MCQ, SAQ, mm, right? Yes. That's actually just to qualify you for an invitation to the Viva. Um, effectively, if you've not scored 50% in at least one of those sections, MCQ, SAQ or medicals, you, it's just going to be impossible to pass overall and you won't get invited. So if you do get an invitation, it means that you've passed at least one of those three sections, all right, and um, you, you then need to pass 50% overall in the exam paper. I think I should qualify that by saying the MCQ is the only section that undergoes statistical manipulation into a standard deviation curve, okay. all right? And that's because um, the papers are repeated again and again, and that's to actually put people onto a standard deviation. Um, and so... You've got to remember that if a lot of people have seen half of the paper, the majority frequently score more than 75 out of 150. Mm. So let's pick a hypothetical mean. If the, the mean for this exam is 85 out of 150, that means if you've only scored 75, you're not going to get the 50%. Mm. So you're not going to pass the MCQs. Mm. Everything else is just a straight score. Five out of 10, you pass that question. All right. Um, and so in the exam, if you don't get 50% in total, you won't pass. So, so remember that you can be invited having only scored 40%. And let's say you've borderline passed your medical. So therefore you've borderline been invited, mm. right? Mm. If you score just borderline out of your vivas, let's say you get 24 out of 48%, mm. right? Then your written score will drag you down and you will overall fail. Yeah, because mm. you still need a 50% mark overall as overall. well. Overall, yep. yeah. yeah. So like if you've done appallingly in MCQs or, or worse, appallingly in SAQs, then you could end up with, you know, some really close mm. but sad score like 49.5. Mm. That's why we don't tell you your raw marks because you'll cry, right? But, <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> they draw the line and they draw the line for a good reason because mm. we all create the standard when we're setting the questions at 5 out of 10 is the bare minimum that we'd accept mm. from a candidate to be a specialist. Yeah. Mm, so when they change to that 40% requirement <clears throat> for an invitation, that must have reduced a proportion of candidates where it was nearly statistically impossible for them to pass. In, like, do you know what I mean? Does that improve the proportion of candidates that have a chance of passing overall? I think the whole point of doing the 40% minimum was actually to encourage candidates to put an effort into all three yeah. sections. Okay. okay, that's interesting. Because, yeah. because there was... There was a phase in time when people would spend four to five months doing the black bank. And before the black bank got, got um, um, decimated into four or five different black banks, people could do a really good prep on black banks. And mm -hmm. so we got to the ridiculous situation where if it was a, where it was a, a question people had seen before, you could get 90% or 100% of the candidates passed that question, which mm -hmm. is, which is ridiculous, really. I mean, it's, it's, just a, it's just a straight recall type thing. And so the exam became this, you know, um, became more, more or less a memory test mm. as opposed to uh, what we were aiming it to be. Mm. So, so now that we've, we've evened up the SAQ and, and evened up the MCQ, you find, uh, you find people spending more time on both. And unfortunately, the reason why the SAQ failed so badly is because if the majority of people do write the bare minimum, and mm. so you end up 
repeatedly getting five out of ten for a lot of answers mm-hmm. um, and, and because that's because they're tired and that's because they're not well organized and there's this huge numbers of fours and fives in MCQ papers not because the examiners are hard markers it's just because people tend not to organize themselves very well which is why I'm making such a point about encouraging people to to learn how to make the poignant uh, statements and do it concisely and add it in because it's, it's such a breath of fresh air. If you see an MCQ, uh, sorry, an SAQ question that turns up with, with six or seven salient points, you're already thinking, yes, I'm going to give them a six. Oh, no, I'm giving them a seven. Oh, my God, I'm giving them an eight. You know, that's, and, and, that's, and, you know, just a few of those can really pull up your socks on the SAQs and give you a great score. And actually, interestingly, what you just said reminded me of something um, that we're told time and time again is that the examiners are actually rooting for you to pass. They're not actively looking for ways to fail you. So, Mm. you know, they're good people, nice, normal people who have normal lives, normal jobs. You know, you rub shoulders with them in the corridor. They actually want you to pass. Mm. So So don't forget that too. This is a question that's come to me a little bit on the fly. So Mm -hmm. feel free to, we can move on and come back to it. But this this time around, given that those marks for the medical vivas are just being removed from the total score, Correct, yeah. what influence do you think that will have on the kind of overall movement rate into a viva? Does it typically swing things much in your experience, people doing particularly well on that area or particularly poorly? What are you referring to here? You're asking about, um, about medicine in particular or the preparation doing it making any impact on on just about just about the exam you know just taking those marks for the medical vivas out of that total like do you think that's likely to have much of an influence i i personally think that it wouldn't because in 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 reality most people who pass the vivas also pass the medicine yeah right because it's such a hugely variable situation that that the examiners have always had a lot of compassion for people with live patients, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a huge number of people passed the medicine and the, and the ones that, that failed the written usually fail the medicine at the same time. In other words, you're generally undercooked, yeah, right? And okay. so you shouldn't be presenting. So I think them this sitting, if they're taking things out, uh, we're, we're not going to see a vast difference in, in pass rates or fail rates. I yeah. think, I think the bigger, tormentor in in this particular COVID period is the fact that people have had to delay for so many months and that Mm -hmm. might be a function of fatigue now and and and, you know just study fatigue I suspect. So Mark by some fluke we seem to have arrived at the end of our podcast way (laughs) before time thank you so much for everything that you've told us are you happy to join us another time? Oh it'd be my pleasure. Fantastic thank you so much. So that's it for episode four, which is part two of our interview with an examiner. You can find and follow us on all your favourite podcast platforms and don't forget to rate and review us too. For any questions, comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can email deepbreathspod at gmail.com. If you know someone who would be a great guest or you think that you would be a great guest, we would love to hear from you too. Thanks for listening and hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.